Hi, welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Full Metal Pod. I'm Jason. I'm Jimmy. How was your weekend, uh, your big game weekend? My big game weekend? Uh, well, this past Friday, I went up to a city in Texas called Temple to meet a Power Ranger at a, like a local comic book store for a little signing. Uh, it wasn't one of the Mighty Morphins from Power Rangers in Space, uh, which is one of the really good seasons if you haven't watched it. And that was fun. And then, uh, yeah, just kind of having a chill, pretty chill weekend. Nice. I didn't do much myself either now that I think about it. <clears throat> I Let's see, what did we do? So on Saturday... So we wound up having a really busy week. And whenever I have a really busy week, I just don't want to do anything on the weekend. So I think I played some video games. I caught up with, uh, I finally finished the Wayans Brothers, watched all episodes, all five seasons, Uh, watched SNL. Uh, On Saturday, we actually, so I'm in process of purchasing a place. And so the dog and I, Winry and I, just walked all the way down to the neighborhood and checked it out see what it's like um she she loved it because she just you know she's a year old puppy so she just loves taking walks everywhere and then we did our virtual brunch yesterday which was fun uh yeah i'm a big fan of brunches well you know that you've been a brunch with me big fan of brunches and since things have been shut down here in the bay area uh we we can't really hang out at actual lunch places or it's not a good idea and then of course some people have temporarily relocated uh due to shelter in place so we just every every so often we just host a lunch uh, over like you know over video chat and everybody kind of cooks whatever they want or orders in or however they want to do it and we just kind of chat nice what did you make like what did you have for brunch I made, so I, I pretty much was just using up stuff that I had in the kitchen. So I made a banana, uh, banana, uh, pecan, well, wa- uh, not waffle pancake. And then I had some chicken, apple sausage and scrambled eggs with it. Oh, that sounds really good. That pancake sounds really good. Yeah. I, so like I, I will order stuff from Uber Eats or, or well, Uber Eats is my preferred one, but, you know, Postmates or whatever, sometimes we'll use the other ones because some restaurants are only on some platforms. But, like, brunch, I feel like, or even really breakfast food in general, I feel like it's not anything that you can order because I, it just doesn't travel well. Like, pancakes have, like, a five, ten-minute period that they're good before they're just crappy. And so, yeah, it just doesn't travel well because, you know, they're... First, they make it, and then they kind of put it on a shelf or whatever on the counter waiting for the Uber Eats guy to show up. And then, of course, he shows up, whatever. He drives it. So, you know, it could be 15 minutes or whatever that it's just sitting there. So I I just prefer to cook my own brunch. Yeah, I like – well, I'm a big fan of brunch. Breakfast brunch, I'm totally down for. I love pancakes and all that. Have you ever tried to make those Japanese fluffy pancakes? Once – and it did not work. My pancakes came out fluffy. Like, I've tried it, and they've come out fluffy, but not, like, souffle, like, that much rise. I'm like, I'm getting rise, but I'm not getting a lot of rise. 
Have you ever had the real thing? Like it's been a while since I've been to Austin, uh, like about a year, and I don't think there was a Japanese pancake place in Austin at that point in time, but maybe there is now. But like, have you ever actually had the Japanese souffle pancakes? Not, no. Only I've only seen it on YouTube and try to make it myself. Oh man, it's my advice is you have to actually go to Japan to have it. And I know you know that's sounds like okay, yeah. Well, yeah, let me just book a trip or whatever. But uh, in Austin, not in Austin, and here in San Francisco, the about a year or two ago, they opened a Graham which is a pancake chain out of Japan, and they do the fluffy pancakes, amongst other ones. So a friend and I went there because I remember eating some, I want to say, in either Kyoto or Osaka years ago, thinking, oh, man, this is great. Now they finally have it in the city, so I don't have to fly across the ocean to get it. And I went, and it was just awful. <laughs> like, I don't know if it was just a bad day or whatnot. It's just it wasn't as good as I remembered it being. But then when we went to visit Japan back in 2019, uh, we found a pancake place in Tokyo and we went there and, oh, that was like the best, uh, best I had. And they actually have like this little window into the kitchen where you can watch them make it. And it's like this precise science where they have like this, uh, well, you know, with COVID now we've seen it all, the little gun uh, uh, thermometers and whatnot. So they're using that to tip the temperature and, it's it's like a science watching them try to put it together. I find it interesting and I like watching it on YouTube and it's always like this, like young mother. And she's like, I'm just whipping these eggs and you fold in your thing and you just put your batter on your hot pan and then hers rises. And then I'm making mine and, like, just full disclosure, I went to culinary school, and I work as a pastry chef, and mine just come out flat. I feel like I know what I'm doing wrong, and I think it's just, it's in the morning, and I don't care. And I'm like, you mm-hmm. know what, these pancakes are good enough. But mine don't come out like they do on YouTube. I know that feeling all too well. I'll see a picture of something on the internet, and it'll be like, cookie, and it'll be perfect, or whatever, then... I try to make it, and it looks like an ink blot test. And like they taste the same. Like you, you know, you'll taste your cooking. You'll be like, "This tastes good." You're just like, why doesn't mine look pretty? Mm-hmm. And that pretty look, like, costs it counts for a lot. <clears throat> I want to find it, and I'll probably put it in the show notes if I do. Uh, this had to be years ago when I saw it. But there's this thing where they were trying to like they were trying to prove or show that. Uh, not what's the word I'm looking for, uh, that how mu- I guess how much plating mattered. So they took like fast food from like Wendy's and McDonald's and stuff like that, but then they plated it like it was from a five-star restaurant. And it, it was kind of funny looking because you know that you're looking at McDonald's, but it had like the plate has like this ketchup smear on it and they put parsley on the side and everything. It's just, it was, it, it was funny. Presentation so do, counts for a lot. Apparently. Do they take the sandwich apart and like yeah. reconstruct it on the plate? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it's been years since I've seen that. So I don't know if I'll find it, but if I can find it on the internet, I will include it in the show notes. 
Oh, I'm definitely interested in checking that out. Yeah, I see, like, that's why I could never be a chef or professional food person or anything, because I'm just not good at plating anything. So I, I think like, everything would just be like, you get what you get, like, you know, a diner. And I, I kind of like the like the hole-in-the-wall diners, too, because sometimes they have the best food, but it's just like... Yeah, we're not trying to impress anybody. We're we're not tr- you know we're not trying to tell you that we have three Michelin stars or whatever. Like here, you get what you get. Plop on the plate, but then it still tastes great. I always and I know people are gonna like roll their eyes, but I like to say that my food is rustic. That way, I don't really have to like you know make everything super uniformic. You know, everyone loves a rustic thing. So I, I like I, my style of cooking is very rustic. Yeah, maybe if I did that, or maybe if I called mine rustic or came up with like a good marketing term, and I'd, I'd probably feel a little bit better about my cooking ability. Like, um, I don't know if you've seen this commercial. You probably haven't because I don't think you watch uh, like regular TV. But Rice Krispies has a new Rice Krispie out, and it's called Home Style. But it's like the marshmallows aren't completely melted and folded in. So you see chunks of marshmallows and they're like home style Rice Krispies. That sounds okay. I'm not sure how I feel about that one, but all right. I mean, I'm down for any Rice Krispies and I don't know if any of our listeners or you um, did this, but growing up, my family, we didn't always have Rice Krispies, but every now and then we would be like, we would make our version of Rice Krispie treats was what it's just like use whatever cereal you have and melt some marshmallows and make that into that. So that's what we would do. We would just use random leftover cereal. I think I did that with Fruity Pebbles once. I don't know that I've ever done it with like Captain Crunch or anything like that. What was the best cereal you've used that wasn't Rice Krispies? We did it once with like uh, Frosted Flakes. I remember growing up. So Frosted Flakes and honey uh, Honeycombs. Uh, is that what it's called? Honeycombs? Cereal? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it looks like the beehive or it looks like the honeycomb and it had like the little weird animal thing as the mascot. Little, bu- yeah. little buzz ball. Yeah. Um, I've had this problem since I was a kid, but I never like to eat the same cereal back to back. So I'll always have like... Growing up, we always had like two different kinds of cereal. Because my parents like different things than I did as a kid. So there would always be two different kinds of cereal. But now, as an adult, I have like three or four different cereals that I like to rotate through. I just, I, I like to mix up life a little bit. Or, you know, even pour some of one cereal and another of a different kind. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, now I really want to, I think, maybe not this week, because I don't have any marshmallows or cereal for that matter. But now I actually want to reminisce and make myself some, uh, some uh, of that, like you know, rice, some kind of rice crispy treat, but with a unique cereal. I'll, I'll, I'll report back when I do it. Oh, uh, sounds good. I'll, I'll do it too. I'll make whatever cereal I have left in my counter, like cabinet, and I'll post some pictures of my rice. My, I'm making quotation marks with my fingers. Rice crispy treats. Same here. But before we do that, let's get to the podcast and talk about some Full Metal Alchemist. Sounds good. 
So we are on episode 25. So we are chopping right through all of this. And we are getting to the end. We're getting to the promised day, which is kind of the uh, climax, if you will, or the penultimate event of the show. We have episode 48 today, Oath in the Tunnel, as well as episode 49, Filial Affliction. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and start with uh, Oath in the Tunnel. So it picks up exactly where it left off with Lon Fawn just laying into gluttony. She does it so much that he actually says, you know, please stop killing me. It hurts or it's annoying. Ling also joins the fight. And it's kind of nice to see Lon Fawn and Ling teaming up and fighting again. We haven't really seen that a lot, maybe over 20 episodes or something to that effect. Gluttony is very confused because it's pitch black and he has no idea how they're finding him. They can't necessarily see him like with their eyes but they're able to sense his presence due to his corrupted chi. Fu arrives and he provides a little bit of exposition. The descendants of the Emperor of Xing are trained in reading chi and using the dragon's pulse and stuff because it's kind of considered part of their duty as being an emperor and using the dragon's pulse to strengthen Xing and all that good stuff. Uh, since Lan Fan and Fu are his protectors, they received the same training that Ling did. And, of course, we know, uh, as a side thought, Mei Chang, she's uh, one of the Emperor's children, so she learned the whole Dragon's Pulse and Qi reading. So, yeah, they received the same training. Uh, Fu and Lan Fan have been hiding out in Central for a while. Then they sensed two large and corrupted Qi presences converging, so that's what caused them to head out to the slums. Uh, he also senses pride, and then, of course, he says he senses a huge chi that dwarfs all the other three in the slum, which, of course, we know is Hohenheim. Lan Fawn apparently hasn't had her auto mill for the full seven months, so I guess there's like a seven-month period that you have to go through healing or whatever before you're able to actually use your auto mill. And so Ed figures, okay, well, I'll help out because there's no way she's going to be able to handle the fight on her own. Fu says not to worry because they have a lot of tools besides just fighting. Ed notices that the lights are returning, so they need to deal with Pride soon. He asks Fu to help him locate Pride. Fu agrees to help him. Darius asks Ed to be careful. Now we see Heinkel continuing to beat up Pride, and Heinkel is getting tired, but Pride is still, you know, doing all right. In Central, Mustang is in Madame Christmas's bar. She gives him some intel on Salim, showing him as a little boy in pictures that date back, you know, years, 50 years, 20 years, a long time, that only solidify the fact that he's not human. In each photo, he is also with a government official. She also checked into the hometown of the Fuhrer. They have a bunch of records saying that he was born there, but when she actually looks at the hometown, nobody has ever actually met anybody from the Bradley family. The mansion that's there is really just a facade. And uh, there's no known relatives, so it's all just kind of iffy and crazy. Madam Christmas is confused as to how no one realized that Selim was a homunculus because, you know, you have this little boy who's showing up in pictures over decades, unchanging. 
But you know, uh, <clears throat> Mustang then mentions, well, the family likely fabricated the stories. They're a, the family of power. His name's King Bradley. You know, he can cover up whatever he wants. Back on the Heinkel versus Pride fight, some villagers come by and see a lion man beating up a boy and naturally assume the worst. They have a lantern with them, and that provides enough light to create a shadow that Salim uses to attack Heinkel. This scares the villagers, causing them to drop the lantern and start a fire, giving Pride even more light for shadows and therefore more power. The Chimera is nearly killed, but Ed shows up just in time to save him, and of course Heinkel's grateful. Back at the bar, we see Central Soldiers run up to the guards outside. They say that Mustang's in there. He must be really getting his drink on or whatever. Uh, the soldier tells them that Madam Christmas's real name is Chris Mustang and is Mustang's foster mother. They realize that this is more than him just hanging out in a bar, but before they can run in to arrest him, Mustang uses his flame alchemy to, to blow up the bar. They escape to the sewers, and Mustang says he'll buy a new house for Madam Christmas when he can. Madam Christmas says she will head somewhere safe, and Mustang needs to save this country. Mustang continues down the sewers and makes it to a hidden tunnel where he runs into Riza, Fury, Breda, and of course the dog, Black Hayate. The Bradleys are in the east according to Riza, but Mustang updates her on his status as being missing after that explosion in the ravine. They wonder how this will affect their mission, as everyone will now be on high alert. They wonder if they should just hold off, but they decide that they need to see it through at this point. After all, with the promised day around the corner, they need to work. They don't really have a lot of uh, movability, or <clears throat> they don't have a lot of options. Mustang gives them one final order, and that was not to die. Back in the fight, Heinkel is recovering, and Ed is fighting Pride. Pride isn't sure why he can't cut Ed. Ed realizes that his auto mail has a carbon base, so he hardens his armor similar to how Greed hardens the carbon in his body. Realizing that he can't win that way, Pride does plan B. He takes control of Al's body and makes Al uh, and makes Ed fight him. Ed has Fu come out and he sets off a flash bomb which is so bright it removes all the shadows from the area. Gluttony notices the flash and decides to see what it is. Lawn is in pursuit, but her arm hurts, and Darius is able to grab Al after, you know, Pride's shadow is destroyed and he's able to take him away. Ling and Lawn join the fight, and Pride realizes that Gluttony is pretty badly beaten up. He also realizes that the two Xingyis have an unfair advantage of following him because of their ability to sense. Pride then acknowledges, hey, we likely won't survive. We're both pretty badly beaten up. And so at this point, Pride cannibalizes Gluttony and devours his Philosopher's Stone. This gives Pride Gluttony's sense of smell, which gives him an edge. It also helps him heal a little bit. Pride is now able to smell Hohenheim, who is shown ho holding Al's body. Episode ends. We see the post credit scene. Uh, the generals are talking to Father. They say that Mustang is likely behind everything from the attack to the Isvalans. Father asks how to find him. You know, what would he do next? 
Olivier says that Mustang would likely take the Fuhrer's wife as a hostage. Father's confused as to why he would do that. It's futile. It doesn't make any sense. But then we see a car driving in the wood, well, with the Fuhrer's wife. They are stopped by a car in the road. Mustang's men jump out and take out the guards and then take the Fuhrer's wife. They say they have no intention of harming her. And we end the episode there. So what were your thoughts? This is probably the first episode that I actually audibly yelled at my television. When the two people from the slum Mm -hmm. comes up and then Heinkel is fighting Pride and they have the little lantern, I audibly said, no, at that moment because I knew what was going to happen. But in the two guys' defense, it does look like a giant lion is beating up a small child. I, I, for my experience, chimera aren't really known as a thing. It seems like only some really high up people in the military or people who happen to encounter them know what chimera are. So if I were a guy just kind of out there and I walk in a field and I see a giant beast looking thing beating up a little boy yeah that would probably be my first assumption is holy crap this thing that i have no idea what it is is attacking this child for no reason yeah and i don't know about you but i still feel betrayed by pride and him being salim i i liked that character from when we first met him he was kind of this cool little innocent boy reading writing papers about his dad and then we find out he's this like so many years old homunculus and it's just i feel betrayed me too like we haven't seen salim anymore like now all we've seen is pride we don't see the little boy anymore he doesn't even talk like a little boy anymore he talks with that you know semi-demonic voice that he has as a homunculus. And I believe, like, I I might be wrong, but he's fighting Ed, and he says something to Ed, like, I believe he calls him a little alchemist, and then, of course, Mm -hmm. Ed gets angry, because... Someone called him little, but I believe this is the first time someone's like used that as like a mean way of saying it to Ed. Usually it's kind of like, Oh, you know, I didn't know you were little or you're just like little, but this feels like, I mean, he took it personal. Like he, he made it personal when he said that pride. Mm-hmm. Well, pride was also like, we had told pride doesn't like him. Pride doesn't have any problem maiming ed i mean he's even said so much as like you know i yes i need to keep you alive but that doesn't mean i can't remove your limbs so he clearly has massive disdain for ed so yeah when he calls him a little homunculus or not little homunculus when he calls him a little alchemist it's purely just to get under his skin and it's interesting um we kind of get like ling's team back together uh with uh, old man Fu coming back in the picture this episode, which I enjoyed a lot. 
Yes, and then Lanfon returning as well. And I guess we get a better idea of what the timeline is, of how much time has passed. At least we know it's under seven months because apparently you're supposed to get, you're supposed to heal within seven months before you really use your auto mail. But she's kind of not just using it, but fighting with it and kind of going all out with it, which is causing her pain naturally. Yeah, and I, I don't think they'll ever talk about this in the episode or in the series more because it just it felt like oh we established something but we can't really go in depth into it right now but i I do wonder what why it's seven months is it kind of to get used to the weight of it or just having something attached to your your body i i do kind of wonder what why seven months exactly my guess, and I don't know if they ever actually go into it, but my guess is it has to do with the way the body heals. So, like, Ed, Ed says in an earlier episode when he gets a new piece of auto mail that the pain of the nerves reconnecting and everything. So I think there is just this whole process of merging your biological fleshy parts and nerves and stuff to this metal part, and it's not something that just happens and i think it takes a while for your brain to adjust to it and for your arm to handle it and all that stuff i do wonder if it's like so it's more maybe a pain thing and just kind of so your body adjusts to it you don't feel as much pain anymore but at the beginning it's a lot of stress on it i'm assuming yeah, I think so, because when we see her getting upset or when we see her reacting, it looks way more like, a, oh, I'm hurt or oh, I'm in pain versus like, I don't know, uh, like, I don't know, like it's blowing up or something. Like, I think it's all pain related. I think it's because like it's too much stress on her nervous system, her muscular system at that point in time. That's why I figure now, now that we're talking about it, but at that moment, I was like, is, does that mean it's kind of like going to detach from her? Like they haven't fully connected or putting too much strain on something so early. It might rip off of you, but it does seem more like a, a kind of pain thing. Yeah, because we don't really see anything, you know, happen to her arm or anything other than the fact that she grabs onto it because it's hurting. So I think it's largely pain. And then... It's uh, it's really cool seeing Ling and was uh Lafant Lafon attack Gluttony, and it's a really cool scene. Yeah, because they're going so fast, and Gluttony's not even able to properly react before Lafon drops another attack on him and slices him up and whatnot. And that's pretty much exactly what she's doing. Like every few seconds or whatnot she's slicing him up and he's dying and healing and dying and healing and he just can't deal with it anymore and he can't fight back either because they're too fast i did think this was going well this episode we do see the end of gluttony but i thought when they were fighting him we were gonna see the end of gluttony and and they did kind of push him all the way up to his breaking point yeah, yeah. As uh, Pride says, that they were both broken up, or they were both beaten up pretty badly, and they probably wouldn't be able to survive because you know they're already running ragged. The two, uh, the, the two Zhingyi's people 
uh, Ling and Lan Fawn have this unfair advantage and they're way too fast and they're skilled fighters. So yeah, Pride just pretty much figures, okay, well, if I get your power, that'll give me an advantage because then I can smell their presence and attack. And we all know he has like ranged attacks and whatnot with his uh, with his shadows and everything. So hey, that'll help. And then of course he said he mentions eating another philosopher's stone. It's going to just even if it's not a fully powered philosopher's stone, it's going to heal him. It's going to power up his philosopher's stone. Okay, so did he know that he was going to get the gluttony's like super sensitive nose? Because I thought he just wanted to heal himself. I think it was both because he mentions the problem with, uh, gosh, what's his name? Mentions the problem with the with the two fighters with Ling and Lan Fan being able to sense him and stuff, and how that gives him an unfair advantage. So that kind of tells me that he knew that he would probably get Gluttony's power if he if he consumed his Philosopher's Stone. And, oh man, and it was pretty. I, it was pretty rough, him devouring gluttony, and it, it does make you see like what kind of I mean they're evil, villainous characters, but they're not too. Uh, they're I don't know how to phrase this. They they're willing to like kill each other to get ahead or to stay into the stay in the game. Yeah, and then. Um... He's, we even see him cry a little bit and tear up, and then he cries for lust. So it really shows that mentally he's still pretty much a child, and to see him being killed like that. And it was interesting, up to that point when before Pride... Oh, man. And Pride licking his lips, I, I want that not in my mind again. It was so weird, like a weird scene. But before he was like, I'm going to eat gluttony, and they were talking, I, I got this like this almost parallel brother vibe of those two being brothers in a sense, and then there's Ed and Al, uh, our other pair of brothers in the sense. But, you know, as you can see, like Ed and Al would never give each other up while Pride was so quick to destroy his other his younger brother so that he could stay alive yeah that that is actually a keen observation i didn't even think about that but yeah they uh we see the kind of that this this difference between them where pride could care less what happens to gluttony and just kills them because it's, yeah he needs more power now in order to survive the fight and he needs some skills so you know even listening to gluttony cry out and beg him not to eat him is and he still just goes with it goes through it and he's like yeah this is me this is what i need and how genius like those flash bombs i would have never thought about that i mean it makes sense pride needs the shadows and a giant light source would remove all the shadows but for ed to think of that so quickly that's pretty cool Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I like is he was he tried to outsmart him. I mean, he didn't what's the word I'm looking for? Ed didn't really exactly um or I'm sorry, not Ed. Uh he 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 didn't 
tried to go and attack him directly, he it was almost a misdirect because, you know, as soon as Al showed up, but being controlled, my guess is that Pride figured, okay, that's that. But Ed had Ed called out Fu and said, okay, now. And then Fu jumped out and did his thing. And yeah, it's just, yeah. It, they were planning behind the scenes and definitely outwit him. And it's it's uh, interesting again. Like I never thought about when the light hits Pride Shadows that it's like his, it's like cutting him open. It's ripping his body apart. But it is because that's how they end up weakening him. Yeah, because his body. I mean, obviously you don't necessarily see it, but his body is that black mass, and the Salim body is essentially just a vessel. So yeah, he, the more they destroy his shadow part, the weaker he gets. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's cool they they, they found a way to kind of to bring him down and control him. Unfortunately, he gets the upper hand by eating gluttony. So that's I I love this whole kind of fighting scene that we're having in this episode. Yeah, it feels like it's ba- not back to basics, so to say, so to speak, but it definitely feels like we're getting back to the way some of the earlier episodes were, where they're actually fighting and stuff. Like it seems like the past few episodes or whatnot, it was just us kind of oh catch it up and talking and doing some exposition and everything. But, I, I mean, we got some exposition in this episode, too, which brings me to, like, my other shocking reveal, where Madam Christmas is actually Chris Mustang, and it's Roy Mustang's, I believe, stepmom? Uh, foster mom, but yep. Or foster mom? Well, I mean, they took they have the same last name, so... Yeah, I'm, it, uh, my impression or what I think is he just took her name or whatnot when he finally got it, when he was fostered or whatever. My guess is he has no idea what his original name was, maybe. The way they interact, though, after um, she destroys the bar, or I don't know if she did, maybe together they destroyed the bar. But it does, yeah, after that, it's like that motherly vibe you get from her. Kind of this uh, tough love where she's like the next time i see you you better not be in a body bag and you're gonna remember i guess now you remember me when you're famous i i loved all that interaction and now i wish we would get more of her yeah unfortunately looks like we won't because it seems like she's leaving or going out of the country maybe we'll get her in like the last episode or something when everything's done but yeah she's and I think we've only gotten to see her like maybe two episodes. So yeah, it's I I would have liked to see her more as a character aside from the two or three episodes where we did sit to see her. And we always got to see her briefly in those episodes too. True. But in this little time that we did have with her after, I'm going to say the reveal, after the reveal of who she is, it kind of, you get the vibe of, oh, that's where Mustang gets his kind of witty humor because mm-hmm. she's got that dry witty humor just like talking to him and bantering with him mm-hmm. and it's like oh that's where he gets it from probably 
Yeah, that is probably where he gets it. And then it also kind of tells us a little bit about his character, too, because we have the big reveal. I mean, obviously, you don't, you know, it's something you can easily miss, but he's a foster child. He didn't grow up in a normal household or anything like that. So it makes you wonder how much of that has actually, like, controlled, not controlled, but uh, how much of that has contributed to the way he is today and the way he sees like helping other people and wanting to take care of people and become pure so that he can make the country better and everything like that. True. And it, it gives you like this, you're right. It gives you a different perspective of him about what is his drive. And uh, out of everyone who wants to be the next Fuhrer, like I said, last episode, I like Roy Mustang the most because his he seems the more purest of everyone that he actually has some genuinely good motives and he cares about people yeah he actually wants to make the country better whereas i think i mean i think to some extent they all want that but i think olivier just wants more power kind of thing and i think same thing with grumman i think they also want to like end the whole uh, military dictatorship and whatnot, and give power back to the parliament. But I think uh, I think Mustang's definitely more geared towards that, or is pushing for that harder. Yeah, I, like I believe if there was another way of of fixing this country without having to be pure that he could do, then he would go that route. But mm-hmm. since becoming pure is the best way to fix this country, because he can make the decisions. That's the way he's going. Yep. Yeah, that was a good episode, good fights. Horror horror with seeing Gluttony get eaten. But uh, overall, I, I I would give this a high, ra- high rating. Oh, I definitely would give this uh, probably a top of my list of episodes I enjoyed watching. Awesome action, some like weird stuff happening with the like homunculus and then the reveal of Madame Christmas. It's got like everything I, I like in an episode. I agree. It was very, very cool to see that and seeing all the action and just this fight for their life as well that they're having with pride. Cause pride is a formidable fighter. I think now we can jump to episode 49 filial affix- affliction. Can't, that's like a hard word to say. Filial affliction. We pick up where Hohenheim is trying to awaken Al uh, because Darius brought Al's body over to Hohenheim to get him away from the fight. Pride asks Ed if Hohenheim would save him if he chopped off one of his limbs. This results in a pretty cool Ed versus Pride fight. Greed then takes over Ling's body and starts to get attacked by Pride. Lon Fawn is trying to fight, but of course, as we mentioned earlier, she hasn't fully healed, so she's having a hard time fighting. And Fu is trying to save Heinkel while Greed blocks the attacks of Pride. Even Greed sees Pride as a monster. Alphonse comes to, and he's a bit confused as to why he is in Kanama with Hohenheim, because he was supposed to be heading east. He then realizes that Pride took control of him. Hohenheim tells him that they essentially share the same blood because 
father was created using a Hohenheim's blood, and the other homunculi are created from father. So in a weird way, the uh, Al and Ed are related to the homunculi by blood. And since that was the case, Pride was able to control him using his blood seal. Fool arrives and points out that Pride consumed gluttony and is now overpowering everyone. The fires are giving Pride way too much light. They also realize that Pride is a potential threat to the slum dwellers because the fight's eventually going to spread out. People are probably going to get curious and won't end well. Al gets an idea and asks for Hohenheim's help. We go back to the fight. Pride has just totally cleared out all the trees in the area, so there is nowhere for anyone to hide. Pride starts to gloat about how he's won and he's going to kill everybody, uh, but then Hohenheim arrives. And he says, hey, you always have to be the hero, don't you? Pride continues to mock him, asking if he thinks he's strong enough to even take on Pride. Hohenheim says that he doesn't think he can beat him. But Pride is naturally suspicious of Hohenheim, thinks he must be plotting something for him to come out so nonchalantly. Out of nowhere, Al jumps and tries to lunge at Pride. Pride is able to subdue Al and just mocks him and just says, this was a stupid idea. Pride calls Al stupid. Which, of course, angers Hohenheim. Hohenheim's like, you know, call my son stupid. Hohenheim uses alchemy, and we just see him create this massive kind of orb out of the earth and contain pride and owl in it. Since it's pitch black in that little orb or that ball, pride is not able to use his powers at all. Ed is angry at Hohenheim, but Hohenheim says that it was all Al's idea. Since Alphonse doesn't need oxygen or water or food, he is totally fine staying in that imprisonment with pride and kind of waiting until the promised day passes. Al figures that this was the only way to ensure that everyone survived since they had little chance of successfully taking out pride. And of course, if the fight continued, they risked further collateral damage with the villagers in the slum. Through the rock, Al promises that he'll be fine, and it'll just be for one day. He'll stay confined until the promised day passes, and they'll be fine at that point. Greed runs off, and he's kind of talking to himself and points out that at this point, Sloth and Father are the only two left defending Central. Ling asks Greed, what is he planning? And Greed says, well, hey, he wants to take over the world. We see random townspeople in Central talking about the recent increase of Ishvalans in the city, but also the random disappearance of Scar. Just by dumb luck, Scar comes by. Scar asks where Kanama is, and the townspeople say it's just south of there. They mention Mei Chang, and they ask if they've seen her yet. Scar's like, doesn't really know why they've asked that, because as far as he knows, Mei Chang head back to Xing. But she says, hey, we actually noticed her walking by lately. And naturally, this upsets Scar because that means she's came back to Central instead of heading to Xing like he told her. Another townsperson shows up and asks if Scar is celebrating. Scar is curious what he means and says, well, you know, the, the attack. You know, clearly you killed Wrath and... Scar says this is the first he's hearing of it. And also, Ishvalans are not terrorists. They're, they're countrymen. So 
he's offended that they would assume that Inishvalen had something to do with the Fuhrer's disappearance. We jump a little further and we see a bunch of deadish fallens in the street and we see Kimberly and it looks like Kimberly is the one who's taking them all out. Inside of the orb, Pride is trying to tunnel out, but Al says it's pointless. It's not likely that Hohenheim made thin walls in that orb. Al says that Pride's, well, his pride was his downfall. He thought too low of people and that's how they were able to outwit him. Alphonse also points out how faulty their plan was. They needed the sacrifices and assumed that they had control over them. But realistically, there was nothing keeping them from just leaving the country and not being able to uh, be used as a sacrifice because they are out of the reach of everybody. Pride says that he has a point and humans are selfish, but there are a few that aren't. He then reminisces a little bit about a time when his mother protected him for being hurt. He was in the street. A car swerved and nearly hit him. She jumped in front of him to protect him. Now the car stopped in time, but she didn't realize that, you know, he would have been completely fine and she was willing to risk her life to protect him. He actually liked her. This was interesting to him. And he figures that the brothers have an even stronger resolve to where they would have not fled, even if it would have saved everybody. They would have stayed and fought. Therefore, their plan, the monkey life's plan, really wasn't all that sloppy. We see Mustang at Hughes's grave briefly, paying him respects when Reza arrives. She tells Mustang that they need to get ready, so they move out. And we get kind of a still glance at Hughes's grave. Scar and his crew arrive at Kanama. The Chimera meet up and argue about who is loyal to Kimberly. It's actually kind of funny because you have two Chimera who are yelling at another two Chimera. They eventually realize that all of them have defected from Kimberly's army. They basically figure that Kimberly didn't care about them at all, and that's why they all deflected. He kind of left them all for dead. Uh, they have no complaints about being fugitives because they know that their new family, the ones that they've met on this journey, the brothers and whatnot, will never abandon them. We see the sun come up and the promised day will be soon. Fu is sent to do some recon since no one has seen him, so it would be pretty easy for him to wander.